<coughs> Today is the 28th of October 2017 and we're going to pick up um, our Pool of Radiance Taisho series and look at a, um, a story from The Hidden Lamp, 20 Stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened m Women, um, edited by Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon. And um, just, just to explain for those of you who, who um, are not aware of it, this, this pool of radiance is the chant that we just did now, the long one that's on the Xerox sheet of paper. And um, it contains a, the names of 108 teachers. And it's a companion piece that we've just started chanting the last few months to our ancestral line. Now the ancestral line is like our family lineage. It, we, we go back master by master, um, from starting uh, with the Buddha and, and ending up with our, our teacher's teacher, uh, Roshi Philip Kaplow, and passing on that way through, through uh, Dogen. So it's very much our family tree. Um, we know it's somewhat fictional in the sense that um, gaps needed to be filled in the, in the historical rec record to create it. And it was something that was done in China. And, and we can understand that it came, what it came out of in Chinese culture was a strong Confucian tradition and the Chinese emphasis on, on blood ancestors and how important those were. But of course, for home leavers, um, the, the, what became important were one's Dharma ancestors. And so this is, this we could say that our, our ancestral line came out of this need to um, feel a strong sense of connection back through time. And, and so this kind of spiritual whakapapa was developed. Um, to help us to sense where we've come from and where we're going. And this is seen as very, very important. Uh, but one of the things that has, has um, always been so up until now with this, this ancestral line is that um, many of the masters in it we don't know very much about and they don't appear in our koan curriculums. And the other thing is that the, the, because of the nature of, of Buddhism in history, which was very patriarchal, there are no women in it. And so um, we now have this pool of radiance chant, which is not a linear construction. It doesn't go from the Buddha to the present, but actually starts with the present and then draws in teachers from um, uh, our, our short, small rest, Western stream of teachers, and then um, through the Japanese, and then the Chinese, and then the Indian, and then also including the mythical or prehistorical uh, Buddhas. And the idea is for this ch this chant to kind of balance our ancestral line um, by connecting us to these women masters, and also we've included in this 108 names. Uh, many of the, the masters that we're particularly familiar with, that we have, feel like we have a strong connection to from within um, other lineages, or the Rinzai masters, um, Igyo masters. So um, we can bring in these figures who are very important to us, uh, w w though we don't have a direct line back to them. 
Um, so we're, we're, we're honoring and recognizing the connections we have even outside of our, our ancestral line, though I think that's still important that we keep that, not, not abandon it altogether. Um, these, we've taken some lines out of our regular um, ancestral line. We used to talk about the unsung women because if we, if we started off, when we changed the chant, we started off by saying unknown women and then a lot of scholarship got done and it was no longer the unknown women. We did know that, who the women were and what their names were and a little bit about them. So then we changed it to unsung women. But the beautiful thing is that now we are singing about these women. So we don't have to say that either. And we've sort of taken that out of our main ancestral line so, and, and just doing these, both of these chants regularly. And the reason why these women are known now and we can, where we can sing about them and name them is largely because, uh, at least in the West, is largely because of scholarship, that there have been women scholars over the last uh, 20 years or so or more um, doing the research, unearthing the stories, and then translating uh, some of the material that surrounds a lot of the women, especially the ones in China, but also in Japan. So in our taste shows, we've been in a sort of haphazard fashion over the past few years and int somewhat intermittently um, looking into who these women are uh, and relying uh, quite strongly on this book, The Hidden Lamp, that came out a few years ago, uh, which goes into a lot of the stories, but also other sources. Um, and skipping around, not doing it in a, in a uh, sort of methodical uh, way, but just um, picking up stories here and there when they seemed um, appropriate. And so today uh, we're going to look at one of the women from the, Indi the Indian stream, which we recite near the end of the Pool of Radiance. And I think it's about, we have about 10 names, um, maybe a few more. Um, which are, are just the female disciples of the Buddha. Yeah, about tw um, 12. And um, they all, the, the, what we know about these women um, all comes with, from, uh, or almost all comes from a single text, uh, 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 which is considered to be one of the earliest texts of classical Buddhism. Uh, it's called the Terigata. And this um, Terigata um, was, is a collection of, of 73 poems uh, by, by female disciples of the Buddha who, who, were, who lived right at the time of the Buddha. Teri means female elder and Gata means verse or song. And these poems were passed down orally for hundreds of years before being written down. And, and so they were seen as very important and they were venerated. Um, but after this time, there was a big gap. Um, the women fade from the records um, and then disappear altogether pretty much. And we don't know whether this is because the, the order died out or whether it was just that the people who were deciding on what records were kept um, were uh, eliminating 
the records about the women or they weren't the records weren't getting made in the first place we don't know uh, we've only so far looked at I think one other person from this group and that's uh, Maha Prajapati who was the Bu uh, Buddha's aunt and stepmother and who became the leader of the of the order of uh, bhikkhuni um, but today we're going to take up another another character from this group and her name is Badda. Uh, ba Badda Kundalakesa. Now the people here who know the Pali can correct me if my pronunciation is wrong. Kundalakesa? Yeah. Kundalakesi. Yeah. Okay. So this her name actually means curly hair. And uh, why? will come out as we go through her story. <clears throat> so her time, she thrived during the, the 6th century, before the Common Era, and um, we'll start off just by reading um, the story that is um, told in the, in the Hidden Lamp. And uh, for those of you who are new, um, this, this Hidden Lamp is constructed a little bit like a koan collection in that um, in each chapter a story about a woman a woman master is is um, told and then there's a commentary and the commentaries are by all different contemporary women teachers um, so we'll we'll um, they're not all koan like some of them are more so than others this one is um, could be read that way and um, so we'll just read the story and then we'll go a little bit into the background information about um, Bada. So Bada was a wandering Jain ascetic, famous for her debating skills. Whenever she came to a new place, she set a branch of rose apple in the ground and put out the word that whoever wished to debate her should trample the branch. When she was 70 years old, she came to Savati and the Buddha's disciple Shariputra came forward to engage her in a public debate. First, she asked a series of philosophical questions of Shariputra and he was able to answer them all. Then he said, you have asked many questions. I would like to ask only one. She said, please ask, venerable one. He asked, one, what is that? This was his question, one, what is that? She was unable to answer. He said, if you don't even know that, how could you know anything else? And began to teach her the Dharma. She was so moved by the teachings that she fell at his feet and asked to take refuge with him. But instead, he told her to come and meet the Buddha. The Buddha recognized her spiritual maturity and said to her, one phrase that brings peace is better than a thousand words that have no use. And this became uh, part of uh, the Dhammapada, sort of pithy sayings of the Buddha. 
And when she heard these words, she was finally freed and became an arahant. Then the Buddha ordained her, saying simply, Badda, come. Okay, so that's, that's our story in a nutshell. So just um, to give a bit of background to this story so that we can uh, sort of understand what is going on in this drama. Um, first of all, it mentions that she was um, a Jain. This was a uh, religion uh, founded by um, uh, Mahavira who was r roughly um, contemporary with the Buddha. And um, the Jain faith um, had strong um, ascetic uh, teachings and um, Bada joined the, the Svetambaras who were known, their name meant the white clad ones and they taught that woman, women could attain moksha or liberation. And um, they were actually the first religion um, in the world to allow women to ordain. So just for more background information, we're going to turn to another text called The First Buddhist Women, which is uh, translations and commentaries on the, on the Terigata. And this is by Susan Murcott. So Bada was born into a, a wealthy family in the city of Rajagaha and um, her father was actually the treasurer of the city, uh, a kind of important and influential position. And one day, uh, when she was about 16 years old, uh, uh, she was, looked out the window and saw a man being led to, to be executed and she fell in love with him. And here we should, we should kind of give them more background that as a wealthy young woman, she would have led a very, a very uh, uh, sheltered life. Um, and so you can imagine that, that looking out the window and seeing things out the window might be quite a big part of a 16-year-old's of life. And anyhow, she saw this, this robber, this highway robber, being taken to be executed and she immediately fell madly in love with this guy. And she um, begged and begged her father to um, get him to be released. And the father, um, out of, I could have say, misguided love for his daughter, did. And he was able to because of his position. He bribed the guards. And in one version of the story, actually had an innocent man replace the thief and go to, for execution. And so then he, he got this, he got extricated this man from his fate, had him bathed, dressed him in fine clothes, and brought uh, him before his daughter. Um, 
And so I can immediately get, start to get an impression of Bada that she must have been um, pretty, pretty headstrong to, to make such a request in the first place and probably pretty unhappy. Um, and also, judging by her, her father's response, she was probably quite spoiled, used to getting her what, what she wanted. Um, we're also told that she had a sharp wit and, and intelligence that wasn't really acknowledged in terms of how she was educated as a woman. Um, but obviously not, not uh, as you will see in the story, emotionally intelligent. So um, this, this robber's name was Satuka and he was the son of a king's minister, so also somebody of, uh, of wealth and influence. And despite having this, this uh, being highborn, having this kind of family background, um, he didn't at this point sort of rise to the occasion and, and, and change his ways but um, was more interested in, in Bada's jewels than he was in her. And so he made up a story once he'd been released that when he was on his way to be executed, he made a, a vow to the, the, um, the deities of the cliff that they were going past that if he was spared, he would return and make an offering. So with, under this pretext, he got Bada to prepare an offering, put on all her, her finery and all her jewels and um, go to this cliff and then um, leave the attendants behind at the, f at the foot of the cliff and climb up um, to this, the top of this precipice um, and uh, ostensibly to make offerings to the, to the deities of the cliff. But you can probably guess what's going to happen. At the summit of the cliff, he um, reveals his, his um, true wishes, which is um, to, to take all her jewellery and throw her off the cliff. And so he ordered her to remove her outer garment and wrap her jewels up inside uh, this outer garment. And, and um, she, in her in a kind of extremity, um, just asked, realizing what was going to happen, she asked if she could have one last wish and, her, and she asked if he, she could embrace him once before he threw her off the cliff. He agreed and she embraced him and then pushed him off. And he fell off the cliff and died. Um, the, the cliff deity actually, um, we, the story goes that he applauded her, uh, uh, praising her keen presence of mind. Um, and we could understand this as self-defense, um, that if she hadn't done it, she would have perished. Um, the cliff deity in one version said, wisdom is not al always confined to men. A woman too is wise and shows it now and then. <laughs> But pretty much as soon as she had done it, she was filled with shame and remorse. 
And uh, if, if, she, if she had not murdered this guy, she certainly had, had been responsible for his death and possibly for two deaths if we, if we go by the, the version of the story which has an innocent person being substituted in the execution. And we can also imagine that in that moment when she pushed her um, assailant off the cliff, there could have been sharp anger. She was so um, ashamed of, of what she had done that she couldn't, she felt she couldn't go back to her family. And um, we're told that eventually she chose to enter the order of the Svetambara Jains. Um, and when she was asked by the nuns of this, of this uh, order what level of renunciation she wanted to undertake, Bada said that she wanted to commit herself to their severest asceticism. And this, the, this severe asceticism involved um, uh, removing all her hair, um, but not having it shaved off, but pulled out. It pulled, all her um, hairs pulled out one by one. After, later on, when she was, was wandering about, she, she didn't maintain the, the, this, and her hair grew back curly, and that's where she got, got her name from, because this um, name means curly-headed curly one, or curly-haired. And in, in, her, in her desire to, to undertake the most severe forms of asceticism, we can guess that that um, this has to do with her, her guilt and her wanting to uh, perhaps in some sense requite um, the damage that she had done. Also, we can see in this story um, a parallel with the story of the Buddha himself in that she, she in this, these two parts, these two first parts of the story, she goes from, from self-indulgence of, of being a kind of a spoiled child, getting what she wants, and then swinging from that extreme over into the extreme of, of self-mortification, just, just as the Buddha made that, that, that pendulum swing. Eventually, we're told, she mastered all the, the Jain teachings, but she still wasn't satisfied. Um, and she left the group and traveled, she became a wanderer and traveled here and there in search of teachers uh, with whom she could debate. And um, as the story said before, whenever she arrived in a new place, um, she, her method of announcing her desire to undertake um, debate was to stick a branch of, of rose apple in a pile of sand and then if somebody wanted to debate with her they, they would kick or trample on this branch and that was the sign that um, a debate was going to happen and she would um, be ready to have, a, have an encounter. And we're told that she became, she became an expert in this debating. 
and always, um, you, know, you can imagine it would be f about philosophical matters, and and she she nobody could best her in this form of engagement. And in this, we can see her her restlessness and her her desire um, to to resolve questions, even if if the way she's going about it is is um, not that skillful. She was seeking she was seeking um, answers. She was seeking the truth. And then one day. Um, after she'd been doing this a long time, we're told um, 50 years, she came to Savati and went through her usual thing of sticking up the, out her rose apple branch. And um, Shariputra sees it and um, he gets, he gets some, some local kids to knock down the branch and um, so they go ahead and um, meet in debate. Crowd gather around and uh, Bada put her questions to Shariputra. And we're told that um, he could answer all of them, uh, even the most abstruse ones and when it came to his turn, he asked just one question. One, what is that? And, and Bada was stumped for all her cleverness and all her understanding of philosophical terms, she couldn't answer, as if her mind had sort of come to a halt. All along, all through her life, she'd been, she'd been searching for um, some kind of certainty, um, but now she found, um, she realized, you could say, that she had, had been, been collecting names and labels and and categories, but the thing itself, she still was not intimate with it. Also, we can imagine that the way in which uh, Shariputra engaged in this debate um, would have had in itself a calming effect on her. There would be, she would sense that there was no, there was nobody there trying to win the argument with him. He was just responding without any judgment. And so she, she recognizing his, his wisdom and her own um, need to, to understand in a different kind of way she goes down and before him and, and prostrates before him and asks if um, he will become her teacher. And at this point he says, well, come and, come and meet the Buddha. So she comes before the Buddha 
and he sees the potential, he sees that all that she's been doing over these past 50, 50 years in her searching is um, coming to fruition. And he, he says these, these famous lines, one phrase that brings peace is better than a thousand words that have no use. And when she hears this, she drops those thousand words that she's been carrying around with her. And her mind completely opens. And the Buddha, seeing what's happened, just puts out his hand and says, come, Bada. And this was, um, this was the earliest form of, of the ordination ritual. And um, she's the only person, only, the only woman, uh, it's recorded as having been um, brought in, into the Sangha, ordained in this fashion. And she was considered, she was considered as being the, the first among the nuns in the speed with which she gained Nirvana. But of course, really, there was that all that um, those years of, of wandering and and searching that that uh, sit in behind her um, deep awakening before the Buddha. And she she um, wrote some verses to express her her uh, or commemorate her. Um, awakening. She writes, I cut my hair and wore the dust and I wandered in my one robe finding fault where there was none and finding no fault where there was. And I'm guessing this is referring to her to her asceticism. Then I came for my rest one day at Vulture Peak and saw the pure Buddha with his monks. I bent my knee, paid homage, pressed my palms together. We were face to face. Come, Buddha, he said. That was my ordination. I have wandered throughout Anga and Magadha, Vajji, Kasi and Kosala, 55 years with no debt. I have enjoyed the arms of these kingdoms. A wise lay follower gained a lot of merit. He gave a robe to Buddha, who is free of all bonds. Free of all bonds. We see this this um, this shift with her from from. from a kind of lonely, lonely restlessness um, into intimacy, into, into uh, becoming, coming face to face with the Buddha and this recognition occurring. And then she, she is, she's brought into this, into the Sangha with this, come Buddha.
I can be sure that after this she didn't need to win an argument anymore. It sense she, in a sense she's moved from, from having to be engaging in debates, which is not a, not a very sort of intimate form of, of conversation, to being in, in communion with all things, all people. Um, in the commentary that's given on this um, story in uh, Hidden Lamp, this is by somebody called Beth Kanji Goldring, and uh, she is a Zen priest and a student of the late Maureen Stewart Roshi. Um, she was a humanities professor, and then she founded the Brahma Vihara Gambodia um, chaplaincy organization for destitute age, AIDS patients in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, where she lives and works. So writing about this story, um, she says, one of the great beauties of Bada's story is that, like the stories of Angulimala, the murderer, and of Milarepa, who pra practiced black magic, it speaks of transformation within this lifetime. Whatever harm we have done, however great, it is possible through sincere effort, sustained by wise teaching, to put it fully behind and to enter into freedom, compassion and intimacy. Bada's story speaks to us not only of realization but of redemption. As one who has done harm in my life, I treasure this possibility. We can, we can all take heart in this. We may feel there are things that we've done that are we're ashamed of that that weigh on us, but um, it is possible to really um, transform these things, um, as as Buddha did. Uh, let them fuel our our search, our perplexity, and eventually have that that perplexity break open. Another thing that this is. Um, pointing to, which is a, it's a really important point, is that um, in Buddhism there isn't a, a, like a, an ironclad system of uh, retribution that happens after doing something like uh, killing. And um, Beth Kanji Goldring um, alludes to this when she mentions the story of Angulimala. Uh, Angulimala was um, a, a mass murderer and um, said to have, in um, some versions he's said to have killed 99 people, another one I think um, 999. One hundred, one hundred in the canon, and then in the commentary, nine hundred ninety-nine. Um, this is I'm reading a little bit from an article about uh, by Tanisara Biko, which is about um, wisdom over justice. Um, 
he says the con conflict between retributive justice and true happiness is well illustrated by the famous story of Angulimala. Angulimala was a bandit who killed many people. The canon counts at least 100, the commentary 999, and he wore a garland made of their fingers, which is where he got his name from. Yet, after an encounter with the Buddha, he had such an extreme change of heart that he abandoned his violent ways, awakened a sense of compassion, and eventually became an arahant. Most of us like to identify with Angulimala. If a person with the, his history could gain awakening, there's hope for us all. But in identifying with him, we forget the feelings of those he had terrorized and the relatives of those he had killed. After all, he had literally gotten away with murder. It's easy to understand then, as the story tells us, that when Angulimala was going for arms after his awakening, um, people would throw stones at him and he'd returned from, return from his round, his head broken open and dripping with blood, his bowl broken and his outer robe ripped to shreds. As the Buddha reassured him, his wounds were nothing compared to the sufferings he would have undergone if he hadn't reached awakening. And if the outraged people had fully satisfied their thirst for justice, meeting out the suffering they thought he deserved, he wouldn't have had the chance to reach awakening at all. So his was a case in which the end of suffering took precedence over justice in any strict sense of the word. If we think of justice as meaning you have to pay exactly the same price as the, uh, whatever you committed, kind of um, eye for an eye and a uh, tooth for a tooth. And, and, but we can, can imagine that Angulimala, when this happened to him, when people threw rocks at him or attacked him, that he would have completely understood that this was his karma uh, because of his former deeds, his violent deeds. And he would, he would have been, um, as, as an awakened person, uh, accepting that uh, maltreatment without clinging to a sense of resentment for, towards those people who were, who were attacking him. And in that way, he would have been um, expiating his negative karma. Um, Tanisaru writes, Angulimala's case illustrates a general principle stated in uh, AN 3101, that's the Anguttara Nikaya. If the workings of karma required strict tit-for-tat justice, with your having to experience the consequences of each act just as you inflicted it on others, there's no way that anyone could reach the end of suffering. The reason we can reach awakening is because even though actions of a certain type give a corresponding type of result, the intensity of how that result is felt is determined not only by the original action, but also, and more importantly, by our state of mind when the results ripen. If you've developed unlimited goodwill and equanimity and have trained well in virtue, discernment and the ability to be overcome neither by pain nor pleasure, then when the results of past bad actions ripen, you'll hardly experience them at all. If you haven't trained yourself in these ways, then even the results of a trifling bad act can consign you to hell because of the way you react.
Um, the Buddha illustrates this principle by using an image of um, if you have, if you think of your the results of your past negative actions as being like a, a large lump of salt, and uh, you put that into a cup of water, then that water becomes undrinkable because there's so much, it's so salty. But if you put that same large chunk of salt into a huge lake, then the water is still quite drinkable because the lake is very large and can just absorb that salt. And he used this as an analogy for this, if you think of the salt as being our, um, the results of our, our past actions, negative results, then if our mind is narrow and small, then those things can really throw us. But if we've, we've managed to develop a, a, um, an expansive mind, a mind, mind that's not constricted, then the same effects will, will be very different, we'll experience them very differently. And we may may interpret um, with Bada that that her her taking up severe ascetics practices was her recognition that she needed to um, change and train, you could say, train her mind, um, move away from from the narrow, um, uh, selfish uh, mind that she she um, had as a young as a young sixteen year old and develop something that was a lot more expansive and um, uh, able to take uh, ups and downs uh, without being bothered. So you can see this theme and then this the theme of, of, um, of coming to, to greater intimacy with things in this story and um, time is up just finish um, at the end of each of these chapters um, the editors um, propose some questions and just just leave um, leave people with these questions uh, can take them up if we want to during our, our tea break questions they pose are how do you know when to stop talking how do you give up the knowledge that keeps you apart from others and what does not knowing have to do with intimacy and this is from a famous um, quote um, from I think it's case number number 20 in the Shoyoroku, um, where a master responds, a master asks a monk, why is he going on pilgrimage? And he says, I don't know. And the master says, not knowing is most intimate. This was the turning point for Bada when she, when she realized that she didn't know the answer to uh, Shariputra's question, what? What is this one? What is this one? 
We'll stop here and recite the four vows.